and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode, we sit down with a visiting fellow academic or two to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm David Giles, I'm a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University, and I'm joined by my co-host, Timothy Neal, a research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. In this episode, as with our last episode, and probably future episodes, we have something a little different. Uh, recently, I attended a symposium at the University of Melbourne called A Crisis of Expertise. A few anthropologists were there, but it was really a cross-disciplinary scene of people, many of whom were affiliated in one way or another with the field of science and technology studies. One of those people was Andy Sterling, Professor in Science and Technology Policy at the University of Sussex's Sussex Policy Research Unit, or SPRU. After the symposium's closing panel, and thanks to the assistance of uh, Dr. Jeremy Baskin, thanks Jeremy, I managed to drag Andy into an office to record a conversation with myself and Matthew Kearns from the University of New South Wales. And we ended up talking uh, for well over an hour about all kinds of things, touching on Andy's work on topics like genetic modification and mad cow disease or BSE, and thinking through the role of policy-engaged researchers, uh, to use Andy's term. Mm, I really enjoyed listening to this. Uh, I had a great time and it sounded like a fun conversation and, and it also spoke to me in all sorts of political and, and intellectual ways. And Andy sounds like just a wonderful fellow to have a beer with, a wonderful fellow to talk politics with, and he sounds like he moves effortlessly between registers. You know, so he started out talking about the difficulty of picking a register, moving, you know, from talking to activists to policymakers, and then by the end of the conversation, he was deep into the ontological uh, weeds. Yeah, he's got incredibly rich work, and I encourage people to go and uh, read some of it, some of which he discusses. But as you say, I, it was a really easy conversation. I kept trying to turn the mic off, and he would say something else, and you'll hear at the end of the uh, interview that I do exactly that before Matt cries out that we need to keep talking. And we did go and go have a beer and kept talking for a, a while longer. <laughs> but I found it really great to be able to talk to Andy about yeah, his depth of expertise in trying to engage in policymaking spaces um, mm. as somebody, as he admits, um, who reads as somebody who's going to come into those spaces and disrupt them. Uh, so I, I wanted to think about his theory of change because in a way he seems intensely pessimistic if we read him according to a more standard theory of change a more sort of operationalist or instrumentalist way of thinking about how you make the world change and if we come from that standpoint he sounds like a really negative nancy <laughs> but he doesn't he doesn't speak like a negative nancy at all and you know he pushes me to think about how does one make change differently you know listeners will hear this metaphor of the cockpit as one model of how we think about making change versus maintaining privilege. I walked away scratching my head about, you know, what am I doing as an anthropologist? Uh, and it's not necessarily to try and push policymakers to di make different policy. Yeah, he doesn't want any of us to come away feeling that we've really made an impact. It's very against, <laughs> as you'll hear, he's very against the impact agenda. Mm. But nonetheless, as, as in his work, uh, as in others, the theory of change is one in which you just have to stay motivated while nonetheless thinking, uh, well, if I wasn't here, somebody else would do this. Mm. 
because the danger that you're guarding against is that you think you become a mover and a shake. When, as he says, uh, things move because they, they flock. Uh, I really love this uh, this metaphor that he uses. So how do we interact with flocks, I guess, mm. is, the, is the question that we're left with. Absolutely. The sort of the ethics of murmuration. Well, so without further delay then, uh, let's go to the conversation with Andy and Matt. To begin, Andy, yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your own links to anthropology, because I understand you have a, a, a postgrad degree in social anthropology and archaeology. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I have to, you know, it's a long time ago, and a lot of water's gone under the bridge. And then it was, so it was a, it was a postgrad in the sense it was a master's at Edinburgh, which was a four-year study, and you do a dissertation at the end. Mm-hmm. So it was, in that sense, it was postgrad, but it was, uh, and yeah, I... I I got into it. I went there to do, went to Edinburgh to do natural science, to do astrophysics. And in those days, in the eighties, there was a strong program, the Science and Technology Studies Unit in Edinburgh, who were talking about the, the almost the they did ethnographies of science. Uh, so they were applying ethnomethodology in science in ways that blew my mind when I got in touch with that. So they, they then they they actually radicalised me. As a as a sun budding scientist, mm-hmm. and I decided that I, I could I could no longer work in that kind of environment anymore. And so the anthropology, which I saw they had themselves been inspired by methodologically and in terms of thinking about plural rationalities and how there's different ways of being in the world, made me then really you know settle on anthropology as what I wanted to do. Edinburgh was very flexible in those days, and so that's why it's kind of a peculiar mix of stuff that I ended up with this masters at the end in archaeology and anthropology. And I'd always been interested in archaeology, so it was then the long sort of time, thinking about deep time, that really interested me as well. So that was a kind of mix of stuff. What was the, the social element that you were working on at that time? I'm a very conservative sort of person, really, and I get to get blinkered. So I've really, then as now, been obsessed by progress. What is progress? And so that's what interested me then. I mean, I was even the thinking about astronomy. I was interested in it. it was this stuff I read as a young teenager about the destiny of humanity and the stars, all this science fiction stuff, and that really fascinated me. And that's what. And then, then I realised that progress wasn't what it was cut out to be. You could think about it so differently. Science wasn't progressing in a self-evident way I'd thought before. And then thinking about different societies and the way they live is actually you can't make unequivocal statements about who is progressing and who not. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that kind of very basic 101 type of stuff. Um, has led now to me still being really interested in, because progress is so central to the myths of what we tell ourselves about our societies we live in now in this globalising world I've been wrestling with that my whole career really what the implications are of the dissonance and confusions around what progress is and might be Mm. and these days uh, you uh, take the form of a policy engaged researcher which I I guess we we still don't really have the terminology for this but um, there seems to be, uh, you know, coming out of, especially out of the English school of STS, uh, yeah. uh, an impetus to you have to engage with, with these worlds uh, yeah. if you're going to write about them. Yeah. So I was wondering about the trajectory that then yeah. followed after that. Well, to be honest, uh, the reason I think that I managed, I got the opportunity, I was very lucky to have it at a relatively early stage in my career of, of engaging in policy processes was because of a, another thing I did. After, after the period we're talking about, which was pick up the activist strand 
did various kind of campaigning things against nuclear weapons, nuclear power, joined Greenpeace. Greenpeace grew exponentially in that time, late 80s, worked Greenpeace for a number of years on their campaigns and just felt this exhilarating sense of agency of what could be done because the world, an opening opened up there and environmentalism was growing. Uh, we did campaigns against the US Navy and had them with, within 18 months withdrawing mm-hmm. their tactical nuclear weapons at sea. It was an amazing time. We threw no, I mean, they were just in the right place at the right time with the right kinds of things that just presented themselves. You couldn't do it now. Um, so that work with Greenpeace made me, I learned so much from just seeing the way to engage with power there, the war of the flea, the Trojan horse kind of interventions, not just the glamorous stuff in boats, which I wasn't particularly good at, but the like going into fora and knowing exactly who to challenge and how to get the whole thing to fall apart in some negotiation. Mm-hmm. A lot of that stuff, people have been thinking about a lot there, picking up not on social movements going back probably as far as Babylon, you know, this kind of how to challenge power. Mm. So that blew my mind. So I learned stuff there, but also more importantly, then when I came out, went back into academia, and I, I was an academic to the environmentalists knew, thought, oh, he's gone to this relatively conservative place at Sprue, mm-hmm. and that's kind of interesting. But also policymakers who were desperately in need of defensive legitimation <laughs> thought, we don't want to invite anyone from Greenpeace, Ooh, but there's this guy at Sprue. So I got this opportunity being invited in on no merit of my own. It wasn't planned. Mm. To, as a, probably in some part of the mix was a legitimation thing, but also it was an opportunity which was uh, unusual to intervene on you know, toxic substances regulation or GM or whatever it was that came up. And, so you, what, and then what you found then, sorry, I'm going on a bit. No, no, no. Um, You're system, anticipating my question. Am I? Okay. So the, I was there, and no, nothing ever happens because there's one reason. So, there's not, mm. so you're there as legitimation fodder, which you had to try and resist and desperately avoid playing into that. But at the same time, the system has sufficiently got sufficient integrity, and especially the individuals within it, some of them do, that you find then there's opportunities to act that you hadn't even dreamt of, mm. to actually intervene on things in a small way, which has some effect. To, to kind of zoom on that, when you went into those worlds, and you were saying, you know, into those fora, were those things that you saw not things reflected in the literature? Yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, there were. I mean, I was. I owed a huge amount to the literature, especially science and technology studies, for the analytical insights and just unpicking the ways power works. So it was in. There was nothing that happened that wasn't in the literature in that sense. Mm-hmm. But what wasn't in the literature so much was the vocabularies. You had to. You tried tried to articulate. Hang on a minute. This is what's going on here. There's something happening, and then you'd use some SDS phrase, and you get blank expressions at the desk. <laughs> Actually, hostile expression. What, what, why are you bullshit? You know, what's this bullshit? Don't talk you know, theory to policy You don't talk theory. Don't talk bullshit. To mm. us. You know, we can't understand it. And also, as a social scientist at the bottom of the pecking order, you have no right to a vocabulary either. Like physicists will happily use or molecular biologists technical terminology, but a social scientist is not allowed to because you're not high enough status. So you then have to try and boil down what you're trying to say into terms that are there. You have, to, you have force to take their terms and articulate the message in their terms. Otherwise, you don't survive. Or you do survive only as the legitimation. Right. So that was, um, that was what happened there. And that took a lot of learning I and mean, a huge number of mistakes to try and distill from it a way of behaving that was true to the critical insights that I owed so much to but at the same time not articulating them in the terms that the, some of the academics and scholars would like to see their insights reflected in. You know, that you had to use different vocabulary. Yeah, and just, just to build that, I mean, yeah. I was really struck by, by your sense of how you move from an undergraduate kind of program into an activist kind of 
yeah. domain and then, then into a PhD. Yeah. Did, did you have a sense of when that relationship kind of clicked or, or is that what, has it ever clicked yeah. or, is, or is it no, still ongoing? No, it's never really work? clicked. You know I mean? and, uh, in fact, now it's a complete dissonance because I think of myself still as an activist, huh. which I, 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 I think I am, but it's a bit ridiculous because I'm obviously a, a privileged, you know, yeah. white, middle-aged male academic. You know, you can... And I, that's what I am in all sorts of so to think but but I still think of my work as being about as, as activism I, 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 that's how I, that's my identity but it's also what I try and do um, but I use academic tools and discourses and frameworks in, in, and I'm an activist try to be on those as well uh, so in the end it's a sort of conceit you know it's a little bit of a sort of identity conceit but I, I, I find it odd thinking about your you as a disciplinary based scholar so we open the discussion based on anthropology but yeah. of, of any academic in a way I, I think if I think if your work is crossing multiple sorts of, sorts, sorts of boundaries yeah. and, and doing that quite intentionally in lots of ways yeah. and one of, the, one of the things I've, I've sensed in this space like particularly between activism and academia is there's a kind of worry I think around a kind of mixture of sort of strategic essentialism that's often yeah. sort of required, yeah. you know, in, in, in spaces around activism, but yeah. also revealing the tactics of activism yes. around strategy, right? So yes. there's a kind of sense that, well, you know, activists are also very strategic in their, yes. in their interventions. Of course they are. Yes. And that sense of like, well, do, do you know, it, it, do, do our collaborations in this yeah. space actually reveal something that should be perhaps kept yeah, in house as it were. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about that. That's a very good point. I, I, for many years, I thought I had to be. It's really when I got my little ponytail. I, I, I you know, don't look. He's a character. Yeah, like you know, it's not like I was like very well disguised. So you only have to walk into a room and there's this awkward free song among the uh, sort of royal society members. Oh, gold, what have we got here? Not even a social scientist, but one who hasn't even tried to look like anything like that. <laughs> their, their character. I mean, most social scientists would be let down as well because they think we've tried for ages not to look like that, and then bloody hell, it goes and looks like that, and he gets invited in there and there's a sort of frustration what's going on you know? uh, uh, he's what we're trying to avoid being seen as and yet nonetheless sure. I thought for many years who was I kidding but like pretend you know I put more references on the end I still do actually too many references on the end of things I write because I'm trying to play I'm trying to say <laughs> play the scholarship thing I realised later on after a few opportunities to engage in this way that actually you can be completely open with somebody on a committee from a corporation <laughs> who's on the complete opposite side of a thing, you can actually be completely upfront and say, well, look, I've, I've actually talked about Trojan Hall strategies in the context of dealing with, with multinational companies on a British government advisory committee. You know, you're in a working group where you can talk more freely and you're saying, and you're saying look, this is what I, this, I... I'm trying to get to a situation where these kinds of questions are asked, but if I want to get them asked, I have to act in this way with you because otherwise you won't pick it up. And at a human level then, with the right mix of things, you get a kind of... Engagement that doesn't happen. Over. Oh, okay, I get where you're coming from, mm. and then it, something happens. Uh, you know, I could talk about examples of that, but which wouldn't otherwise have happened. So you can be upfront about being strategic and Machiavellian with the very people you're wrestling with, <laughs> and get more than would otherwise happen. Yeah. Uh, if with the right kind of human thing going on around it. Yeah. So, but I can't advise. I, I think I've just been really lucky. That can really—I've been very lucky in a set of contingent things. Because I, I was going to ask. Yeah. I mean, what are your key strategies <laughs> for yeah. getting in the room? Because yeah. once you're in the room, yeah. that gives you space to be yes. strategic. But how do you get in the room? Yeah. Well, I think in a way, probably, and I can't. I, I basically, I don't know. Right. And it's so easy to pick up on contingent features that you never really knew quite what happened, and then 
have a story to tell about it, which is... It's almost re- reconstruct that. Yeah, and often it's quite a self-aggrandizing story. So I, I basically don't know. But one thing I do think I've learned is that actually, and I was lucky, I didn't know this, but just, I mean, be yourself. Don't feel you have to play a game. And I, for instance, the most powerful thing I had when I went on the first committee was I was invited on. I thought it must be some sort of clerical error. You know, why am I invited on this toxic substance advisory committee? Uh, I discovered later why it was, and it was exactly a dynamic of, well, we'll actually scupper. Somebody who had no interest, coincident with my own critical environmentalist stuff, wanted to scupper something else on the committee by bringing in a wild card. So you were somebody else's I was someone else, and there's probably wheels in the wheels, and it wasn't even just legitimation. It's like, let's, let's monkey wrench this thing. So in I go, and I had nothing to lose, because I thought, well, this is a clear, I'm out of here really quick. So I conducted myself. I tried to be polite and tried to be substantive and engaged and play the game. But I also had nothing to lose. I thought I was out of there. And so I really made moves that were audacious about regulating some particular chemical, together with other people who knew much more about it than me. And cutting a long story short, things happened in a small way on, you know, the thing, dichloromethane. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm out now. No one's going to invite me back. But then you find yourself invited back because actually the system does need that kind of behaviour. So I hadn't realised it did. Don't underestimate the power of knowing what you want. To be frank, a lot of these committees are populated by people who, who what they want is their OBE. You know, they want to get some gone. They don't want to make a mistake that makes them look bad. If you don't care if you look bad and you've got some completely separate aim, that makes you quite a powerful figure. Mm-hmm. And as long as you don't let yourself down by saying you know, getting something wrong or, or, or misbehaving in some way, you can actually find it's quite a, there's quite a lot of agency. Because other people are just looking around for their signals about what they should or shouldn't do in order to be favoured. But, but on this point, I mean, I, I mean, because, because in a way, Andy, like there's another way of reading your your work as almost a sort of the epitome of a kind of impactful academic, you know, a, a, a tapping into what. And I, I know you hate that, but yeah. you know, there's a sense in which the, the, this kind of engagement is also now increasingly expected, right? Under the auspices of, of something like the Impact Agenda, kinds of kinds of you know engagements that formerly would have been potentially seen as outside the purview of, of what a of what a you know a constitutes an academic kind of career are, are now kind of to some degree to some degree being incorporated and, yeah. and so like a, you, know, so, 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 you know some of my colleagues who are actively engaged in the green movement are now kind of interestingly sort of saying that they can kind of in a sense count that as part of their impact metrics <laughs> that, right. that engaging in those kind of fora for example now, that does interesting things, I think, to this space. Yeah. I, my, I'm, I'm, what I'm thinking, yes, you're right, and I'm, I'm, I think it plays out in different ways in different countries. I've got a feeling there's yeah. some quite important differences between how impact's playing out here in Australia than in the UK, so in the moment, but, but, and I don't know about that, but my main reaction to this, aside from the toxic individualism, as I would see it, of the impact agenda, where it encourages us to, to, play, that, to play out that sort of storyline, is also a structural thing, which is that basically... In the UK context, at least, you need to document these impacts in a fashion that's very demanding. You need oh, sure. an incumbent actor to, to go on record in some fashion, either contingently by something they've written citing you or write you a letter telling you that they did X because of you. And so basically, it's, the whole thing's a fiction, obviously, because that's never the case in that sort of simplistic fashion. So basically, they needed a relationship with them whereby they're prepared to do that, mm. even though it's not true. And, and the conditions under which that occurs are when you have aligned yourself with what was going to happen anyway. Because the circumstances under which a powerful actor is prepared 
to make that associate that we did X because of Y mm. is when they want to legitimate they're doing X. Now, they will do X anyway, but they need Y to help justify it. Mm. Mm. So, um, now in a small way, I've experienced a little small eddy currents of this. Myself, I did work on diversity and energy system where I was motivated by undermining a nuclear argument. Mm. But at the time, the government, unbeknownst to me, wanted to pull out of that policy anyway. In I go, you get cited in a white paper. It wasn't because of me. I got cited in a white paper with a diversity metric that hadn't been used before. And it was very cool for me, you know, like, government, Tory government, publishes a paper withdrawing a nuclear support, invoking a metric that I put in. But they weren't doing it because of me. They were doing it because they were going to do it anyway, and they needed someone to help just part the background so as, in general, that's a little thing that happens at the sidelines. But in general, what that means is that it's a systematic way of disciplining academia. If you want to show impact, you've got to align yourself with something that's going to happen anyway. Because the last thing, if somebody does change, forced to do something they wouldn't have otherwise done because of your work, or the last thing they're going to do is cite you and credit you. <laughs> the last thing, that, they'll say they did it for some completely different reason. Yeah. So it means there's a huge bias in how you can document these things. I mean, I'm thinking in lots of different directions, but one of those is that the impact agenda structures us towards being kind of consultants for hire. We end up in the room because we have an instrumental purpose for somebody. Yes. But, but, but in your work, too, I mean, so, so you do a lot of collaborative sort of work. Yeah. And there are spaces and opportunities... Where, where there's a, a kind of play between a, 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 between instrumental, you know, who's being instrumentalised in, in a relationship, right? And that's hence why, but I, and I don't know the answer to that because I regularly ask myself in my own work, have I submitted myself to the imperatives of the the context in which I'm working, uh, or have I not? I live within that tension yeah. because I know that if I don't live within within that tension, I don't get to do the work. Yeah, you know, and I would just be on the outside, you know, reading policy documents yeah. and, and notating, you know, yeah. policy language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and part of the downside of that is I think that, to go back to your work, when you do get in the room, you learn things you can't publish. Yeah. I was wondering if that's the case in your, in, uh, in, in your experience. I suppose so, but I have never signed And what do you do in, with those? Uh, well, you use them, <laughs> for sure. But I don't have anything that I've learned that I don't talk about. Like, for instance, one dynamic on one committee was where a major sort of patrician figure from a leading British university on this committee just roaring over everyone, uh, saying, you know, dismissing people. And, on, and then he made a little error, in my opinion, on something. And so I just decided I was going to just say, uh, um, Chris, I think you just made a mistake there. Free song in the room. And, I, uh, and he basically made it, I think, in an ignorant, it was a type 2 error. He concluded that absence of evidence was evidence of absence of something. <laughs> so I said, that's a type 2 error. And to accuse someone of an error in a British site you know, is a very serious thing because no one acknowledges anyone ever making an error. Slap them with the glove. Yeah, it was like, it was like that. Exactly, exactly. Um, but what was interesting there is that um, another member of the committee, who turned out to be a very leading figure in statistics who I hadn't even realised was there, was then referred to by the chief scientist. Perhaps you could comment on whether this is in fact an error in the way this <laughs> dishevelled social scientist, who's previously always criticised quantification, seems to think he's... And there was an awfully long pause where Tumbleby was going round and round. Ford's figure said, no, I, I think Andy has a point. And after that, it was, it was really interesting that the, the, the solidarities 
with, with having done that to someone everyone was fed up with having it all, even they're on the same side on the GM issue, but they were fed up of this happening. Now, then afterwards, some time later, I was in a stairwell and said, I think I owe you a beer for that to this character. He said, anyone who was gay and with his character at Oxford in the 50s would do the same as I did. So, in other words, there was a sort of dynamic of repression and reaction going on going in, in, within the community where just by, on one axis, being critical... And then having someone else completely unknown decide, he said it could have gone either way. I could have said, I could have supported you or not. I decided to because basically, implicitly, he didn't articulate it. He needed taking down because that sort of domineering approach is wrong. And so there's a little microdynamic about as intimate and unspeakable of as you can get, which I wasn't, I wasn't a plan on my part to use it. It mm-hmm. just came, came about and it, it ended up with something happening in that committee that otherwise totally wouldn't have happened. Uh, there's lots of little things happening like that, most of which I've forgotten, mm-hmm. which I think you can, you know, you should be able to talk about. It's not signed any non-disclosure kind of on it. In my opinion, one of the real contributions of disciplines, you know, of, of scholars with disciplinary backgrounds and things like anthropology and sociology that engage in these worlds, is to draw simply draw attention to some of the social dynamics that push those committees, that push yeah. policy making. Yeah. That itself is a you know is an intervention. Yes, because from the outside, those kinds of you know white papers that governments circulate, yeah, you know, are completely opaque, perhaps by design. Who are the humans who put this together? What yes. were the values driving them? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's going back to the insights of anthropology, you know, that things are not neatly scaled, rhizomic relations between things that defy neat formulaic storylines. Hmm. Those insights, which you know, ethnomethodology is all about trying to unpick and has all sorts of moves. They're, they're just basically, they're true. So power works like that. And you can't predict exactly what will happen. But if you, if you, you know, chance favours a prepared mind, if you throw yourself on the wind, these things can present, the opportunities can present themselves. And so this frontage of the document itself, behind it is a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dynamics like this one I'm describing happening, which can be used if you... But the, the problem is... I think to become conceited about how your special relationship with people is somehow uh, that you're a mover. That you're a mover because of that. When all you are is a bit flotsam and jetsam on the on the tide, you happen to be there, you're bouncing around. You're not actually affecting individual. You know, you, if you try and if you try and act as an individual having an impact, you end up just being vulnerable to vanity and conceit because then you can be used. You know. Yeah, and, and on this point, I, mean, I think there's a kind of bridge between the, the discussions we were having earlier and, and then the discussions you might pivot towards around the, around the, the conference. Because, I mean, in a way, it's, it speaks to me about anthropology as a discipline. And, and, I, and I, so I'm not an anthropologist. And, <laughs> and the way that I hear anthropology people talking to their students is, is in a very particular kind of mode of scholarship. You know, you've got to do your ethnographic work and then publish your book and then establish yourself as a scholar and then from that basis you you know you, you then engage you, you know and there's that kind of discipline of career trajectories and and correct me if I'm see this is a you know a, you know a bad kind of or a, you know, a way of you know sort of ventriloquizing your work Andy but I, I see in your work an incredibly um you know um worked through analysis of, of power and, and a theory of pluralism or a theory of mutualism to mm. some degree, mm. which you know, in other contexts, might be written up as a you know cosmopolitanism, which is you know mm. occupied 
you know, tomes in anthropological literature. Mm. But, it, but you're doing that kind of work in a, in a different kind of space, in a way, mm. with an incredibly well-worked-through mm. kind of theoretical apparatus. You know, the way we talk to our students about the kind of sites of possibility for, for, their, for their work mm. are really important. Yeah. Well, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know for what it's worth or my reaction to that is, I mean, the most, one of the most formative things I came across in those days in Edinburgh when I was studying anthropology, but STS as well, was Paul Fairhaven's Against Method. Mm, right, right, right. And that embodied for me, that, that radicalised me like no other single thing, actually, and it's now not a fashionable, in fact, he's decried in some ways, the sort of anything goes, which he meant ironically is a... You know, something we were talking about in the conference, you know, like, you know, everyone denying the anything goes sort of formula. So, and that was a, a absolutely effective assault on disciplines themselves. And I, I, I feel that for me, I still feel I feel disciplines themselves. So that's as true of social anthropology. The idea that these stories you have to tell about, you know, becoming a scholar and stuff, and then you'll have, and you'll then you'll be in a position to have an impact. And you know, it can happen, and it's a very honourable course of you know life to take. I wouldn't want to denigrate it, but. It's, for me, it's, it's part of the problem that disciplines behave in that kind of way and exercise in you know, a form that's more in, all the more insidious for being so parochial and small, these power dynamics you find elsewhere. You know, it's, it, when we've only got one life, it's such a shame to spend it disciplined in that way, I think. And especially then if you have ambitions to try to be part of wider movements for progressive change in society, it's hobbled by that kind of thing, I think. I, I owe a huge debt to anthropology, but I'm not a proper anthropologist. And I actually think that when ethnographers or anthropologists reify their kinds of stories, like you know, the idea that in a given place there can be places in which there's the story, you know, that's as reifying as a scientist who will aggregate a model. So it's, it's, there are, I think the same kinds of, as I would see them, pathologies of reduction and aggregation that take place in the knowledge processes I'm trying to engage with also take place in anthropology where it's just because your village was different from someone else's village, then you, you get, get away with a degree of rarefication that no good anthropologists allow anyone else to get away with. Anthropology knows these things, it's written about them really mm. fantastically, but uh, that's, you know, so I, I feel that there's, there's issues like that which no one knows better than social anthropologists themselves. Well, let, let me figure, therefore, the question of the conference uh, in, in terms for us. Uh, is there a crisis in social science expertise? Within within kind of public policy worlds, yeah. Well, I, I think it's apparent. It is a. It is. It's not in crisis. It is a crisis. It has always <laughs> been so, because I mean, we mentioned. Came we up, have we never said, not been in crisis. No, and it, we are in fact a paradigmatically a crisis because social science knowledge is a double hermeneutic of Giddens. You know, uniquely among all the disciplines, the social sciences, their subject is their object. So. I mean, whether it be sociology or social anthropology, those sort of levels of social psychology, a bit more out of it because it's to do is individualizing. But science itself is a social process mediated by social relations of the kind anthropology and sociology engage with as their objects. So we're unique in that respect in that the subject is the object. Social processes looking at social processes, whereby chemistry, physics, biology, social processes engaging with material physical, biological processes. So that ontological distance allows a kind of epistemic foreshortening. You can use categories, you can simplify, you can reduce in ways you simply wouldn't get away with with social phenomena. So it's a crisis because, A, you cannot actually crystallise out settled aggregations or generalisations. 
because the subject is the object and it constantly destabilizes itself. But secondly, you can't, because there is nothing more inconvenient to power than denying it the kinds of stories it wishes to tell about society. So social art, even if they're actually quite instrumental, they're dangerous, because they are concerned with the bedrocks of the of, implement, of the of implementing hegemony, which is telling stories about society. So if you have people who are telling their own independent stories, even if they're actually trying to be aligned, and they're, they're a liability, they're a loose cannon. So it's a crisis in both those senses. The kind of question we might ask is, so, so what happens in and after the crisis? And so the, the crises are, very, are often very productive mm-hmm. moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've done a lot of work on what many people would characterise as a crisis in, in British science policy around BSC and GM. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure you'd characterise it in those terms, but mm-hmm. many people would, 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 have, would have seen it as a remarkably crisis-like yeah. time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and lots of productive... Kind of yeah. opportunities were presented in that yeah. in, in those in those spaces, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I'm I moved in on. I mean, there's spaces there made by others. Folk at Lancaster, Brian Wayne, Robin mm-hmm. Grove White did a fantastic job opening up spaces that wouldn't have been there, which then people like me could move into. So uh, that's another thing: the way in which the ecosystem of different people working mm-hmm. each on their own little way, where they, no one's got the big picture, makes space for each other. That's another thing. Partly, we you know we should be brought in in the discussions of this kind. But it was, a, it, yeah, it was a forced humility. It was just what Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, referred to as events, dear boy, events. Mm. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, it, was, it was a contingent set of circumstances that forced humility, the conjunction of BSE and NGM, which were not separate to each other either, but that double whammy mm. in the late 90s opened up a massive space, joined within the Labour government coming in with all this rhetoric, which was to be <laughs> betrayed later on. But that conjunction of things was extraordinary. Uh, and it wasn't created by social science, but but there were some astute social scientists who position themselves, in the case of people like Robin Grove White and Brian Wynne, quite activist ones, to really make the most of it and allow others to do so as well. A lot of the conference conversation has been framed by, you know, a kind of anxiety about what some people call the emergence of a post-truth era. And one other way we might read some of this is 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 the kind of sense that we're being asked to stand between truth and fact on the one hand and populism and, mm. and values on the other, mm. is, is the sense that, that facts and values don't seem to be doing what, they, what, what, what people want them to do anymore. Yeah. They're, they're not, they're not, they're, they're, there's something in that, yeah. generally speaking. And, and so if it is a crisis, yeah. perhaps it's, it's, it's a recognition on the part of um, science, the science community, for example, that, they, that, 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 that they've sort of lost something. I think that's true. That is how it is portrayed by many in the science community and others, including their critics. I don't think it's true, though. I think it's a story. It's a, a golden age myth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think there ever was a time. And, and the point is always made that you never get a situation like we've had here, this kind of where people don't point that out. But then we carry on because somehow the, the storyline has a function <laughs> to tell the story of the crisis we're now in. By contrast with some notional past, when it, you know, then when there were facts and everyone knew their place. Um, yeah, you you know, right. I, I just don't. I think. I mean, I, I. I mean, part of the story, I think, for me, is that actually, ironically, expertise, scientization, technocratization, they're being asked now. Globalization, without any, is in, it bring is is amplifying those processes. They maybe have run their course in their substance, but they're, they're now rolling out institutionally around the world in ways that are just extraordinary. So you have these global institutions and institutional cultures 
you know, for instance, around regulation, which are scientized so intensely that actually the crisis is, it's a, you know, like a planetary boundaries discourse, the Anthropocene, where we conceive of, you know, we scientize this notion of destiny on the, over geological periods on the planet, to my, to my mind, ludicrously hubristic, and basically turning things that were political into things that are now technical. So the crisis is this massive entrenchment of, of expertise, not, not its erosion. And to the extent that then you see in Britain the Brexit debate with its anti-expertise or Trump, their reaction, I think their reactions in smaller scale reactions to that global process is still unfolding. Right, so we're seeing what are actually minority kind of responses as majorities because they are yeah. they're getting so much yeah, attention. Yeah, the, you know, the cosmopolitan technocracy that is coalescing around the world on all, you know whether it be on the economy, in regulation, science, in innovation, in identities. You know these things are really uh, intensifying. I think, and what what for me is a kind of tragedy almost is the left, the progressive emancipatory interests in society have failed to produce the cultural or institutional or practical resources to articulate that reaction to scientization and technocratization. They've failed to build it on the left. If anything, the left has almost like seen it as a quick route, partly because of the Marxist tradition, a quick route to the cockpit. We need to get to the cockpit, then we'll somehow engineer this fairer society, despite all the evidence pointing otherwise that when you get to the cockpit, you've forgotten what you were there for. It, the left failed to provide those means, and it's the right, actually the really ugly nationalist, you know, neo-fascist in some cases, right, who've provided that the, the conduit for that reaction. So there's a way of, I guess a way of reading what you're saying is that we've come to democratise expertise perhaps too late. Yeah, I think there's a loss of nerve. Among the, I mean, for the classic, classic Marxist, I mean, it's caricaturing a bit, but Marxists resented environmentalism. Marxist caricatures are welcome on this. Well, <laughs> I mean, so I, I have a huge respect for Marxian analysis. I think it's hugely insightful, and, and many Marxists are, you know, I'm not trying to la- label here, but what I mean is Marxists felt pretty cheesed off with environmentalists for stealing the thunder just when it was all going to happen. Supposedly, environmentalism came along. But I think you could tell the story the other way around, that actually it's that the fact that the, the institutions of the left were settled a century ago with assumptions about the state and, and, and the way power works and hierarchies in ways that then made it extremely vulnerable to technocracy mm-hmm. and scientization in the way we've been talking about instrumentalization of knowledge which environmentalism, the, the 68 cultural revolution, really challenged, you know, it, it saw power in culture, Foucauldian saw the notions of power, really moved on it. Environmentalism and human rights NGOs, you know, the civil society burgeoning with, embodied that, was really making traction, but in the end has succumbed to that longer, longer durée sort of trend of scientization and technicalization that was already happening in the, on the left generally. And so if, one, if it's about betrayal or undermining of one side by the other, it's more that way around, I think. So now you see, you know, with climate change, we're, we're addressing climate change in this amazingly technocratic fashion and failing because of it, you know, trying to manage the planet rather than put our own house in order and stop emitting these uh, toxic gases. But we're doing it because we somehow want to modulate the Earth's temperature to a notionally very fine degree, rather than just stop putting 13 billion tonnes of carbon in the atmosphere by substituting for, for energy strategies that are self-evidently 
better anyway, no matter how you look at them. Instead, we've mediated it with this incredibly technocratic thing about somehow having to model the entire planet. So that's an example, I think, of, of the crisis of expertise, that it's so overblown that we're not able to do things we used to do. A lot of environmental issues were won on the basis of let's stop dumping this stuff. It's wrong to dump it. So, one, so in the example you've just given, it, 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 one story is the, the hugely kind of hubristic terminology of the planetary boundaries and, mm. and, 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 and modifying and, mm. and manipulating the Earth's mm. uh, kind of, um, you know, you know uh, yeah, atmospheric conditions, etc., mm. etc. And we can amplify that in, in one sense, but, but, but another, another option might be to amplify the, the micro-struggles mm. that, are, that are not orientated in that direction, yes. but that are doing really interesting, yeah. grounded yeah. material work. Absolutely. That together... Yeah add up to a very different kind Absolutely. of picture. So yeah. it's like, yeah. do we amplify the master's story yeah. or do we amplify some, something yeah. different? So, yeah. Right, but I, I, I mean, personally, I think it matters. Well, the stories matter. Stories are material in, some, mm-hmm. in, their, in their implications. And so it, for me, I'm concerned when biochar, for instance, which, you know, biochar practices at the micro level can be enormously, I mean, I mean they have been beneficial for thousands of years, people, no one knows that better than people who yeah. developed it in the first place, yeah, yeah, yeah. and now and, and simulate into a, a climate geoengineering story matters. It does matter, absolutely. It matters, yeah. and, and, it, and so the biochar itself can be a really fantastic thing which we should learn from other cultures how that can, be, in fact, work yeah. rather than some of the uh, high-intensity industrial pra- agricultural practices that we would otherwise be imposing. Mm. So, but on the other hand, once we start telling the story, this is about and, and tactically it makes sense. Like, let's get some resources to help us mobilise this. Mm. But it's a, it's it's dealing, it's dicing with the devil, I think, uh, dancing with the devil. That um, that when you actually subscribe to a story like like the geoengineering story, I mean, I think you know, go back to the earlier point about about change. I mean, it's yes, the lesson I. I think comes out of any kind of serious engagement with progressive transformations of the past is mm. the dynamic is not a hierarchical, structured, mechanistic, get to the control mm. room, the cockpit, pull the levers kind of thing. Mm. It's a flocking. It's like it's like happens in nature with flocking behaviours, mm. where you just you're part of, and the impact agenda can massively encourages us to take the cockpit type of model. And the thing is, it's manifestly not true. I mean, the cockpit-type stories of control are not how the world works because the world power isn't about exercise of control. Power is about enjoying privilege. And the way you enjoy privilege is by effectively getting your stories of control to be accepted. So, in a way, the game is about privilege, maintaining privilege, but it's sustained by stories of control. So when critics tell stories of control, they're ironically supporting incumbency because they're, they're telling a story of control and saying, you're failing to control properly... <laughs> As if control is what it's about. It, it is even within society, let alone the planet, it's not about control. Nothing has ever been controlled, nor does control even have any meaning in the sense of any sense of that's faithful to the word. What's really going on are mutual relations, flocking behaviours that, that no one is actually determining. Mutual relations like care, for instance, you know, it's not a coincidence, friends of the earth, caring for the planet, caring for each other, which are, which these are how change takes place. And it's very inconvenient to structures that justify themselves by control stories for that to be really recognised. And it's very convenient for, for even criticism to take the form that buys into the main story, which is it's all about control. This seems like a convenient place to leave our conversation. Uh, <laughs> so much in that! <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, 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 
sorry if I've gone off on a tangent. No, no, no. It's been uh, a pleasure to be able to speak to you, Andy and Matt. Thank you for joining us uh, on Thank you. the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us here in another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. This episode featured a conversation with Andy Sterling from the University of Sussex and Matthew Kearns from the University of New South Wales. If you'd like to learn more about their work, you can find them online and you can find Matthew on Twitter at at MBKearns. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can find us on Twitter also. I'm at at TD Neil and David is at DH Border Giles. Or you can also find us at blogs.deacon.edu.au slash anthropology. <laughs> <laughs>